This week on the Sports Initiative podcast, I sit down with chairman and co-owner of Danish football club FC Helsingor, Jordan Gardner. He discusses the business aspect of owning a club and the actual process of purchasing one, his initial observations upon entering a club and what he is looking to evaluate, as well as potential trends and openings in the market. As always, please do us a favour by sharing this podcast with friends and family. I hope you enjoy. Perfect. So, Jordan, listen, really appreciate you spending a bit of your uh, early afternoon with me. How are things over in uh, Southern California? Well, I hope Southern California. Yeah, no, good. Uh, thanks for having me. It's uh, it's good to spend some time uh, back home, recharge before the new season. And uh, yeah, weather's nice. Good time of year to be back back in California. Yeah, perfect. I think this is a really exciting opportunity for, I guess, for myself and for the listeners to delve a little bit into the, the inner workings of a club and strategic aims etc because you go on social media everyone has an opinion but probably don't know the, the background behind stuff so people that maybe don't know you could you go over kind of what your jobs and roles are etc and I guess a little bit of summary of how you got to that position yeah so uh the main project that I'm involved with is a Danish football club called FC Helsinger uh, I'm the chairman of the club the managing partner and uh, one of the owners of the club and so uh, I split my time pretty much 50-50 between the U.S. and, and mostly in Denmark. And you know, we have a, a CEO who's on the ground, but I work closely with him in terms of managing all the day-to-day operations of the club. Uh, you know, that's obviously overseeing everything going from the commercial side, ticket sales, sponsorships, operations, to overseeing our sporting decisions when it comes to signing players and managing our roster and, and everything that goes into running a football club. Um, I have other interests in football, though I don't actively manage them. I'm a small shareholder in Swansea City in Wales. I'm not involved really in the club at all. Uh, I previously was involved in a club in the Republic of Ireland called Dundalk. Um, our group sold our interest in the club, so I'm not involved there anymore. So uh, how did I get to this point? Uh, I sold a company about six years ago. I had a technology company I sold here in the U.S. I played soccer or football growing up. was really interested in the sport. Um, was able to get involved in a couple smaller projects here in the U.S. And, uh, you know, with the entrepreneurial background and, and good connections in Europe, I thought, you know, jumping into something in European football made sense and was something that I was particularly interested in. And so we've been in Denmark for three years. I've been a shareholder in Swansea for, I think, four or five years now. And, uh, you know, obviously speak a lot about ownership and, and management of these clubs uh, from an American perspective, particularly. Uh, we're always looking at new projects. Um, and yeah, that's a little bit of background on, on, on what I do. Perfect. So I guess the first question comes in, how do you identify clubs that may be uh, of interest or that you might be able to add value to? Because you look at current climate, there's a lot of clubs that have recently been sold and obviously you've got Derby County at the moment are hoping to get sold, etc. So from your perspective, how do you go around identifying a club that you think you or your group would add value to them and then they'd obviously... Add, add value to your portfolio as well. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of variables at play in terms of from an investment group perspective, what's the you know uh, risk tolerance and what's the financial commitment, right? I mean, there's a big difference between buying a club, smaller club in Denmark and buying you know a Premier League club from a financial commitment perspective. So I think that's one limiting factor in terms of what we look at in terms of price points and how much it costs to run these clubs. 
I think the the market and the country where the where the club is at is important because there's obviously significant cultural differences between running a football club in England or France or Italy or Spain or Denmark. Um, you know, for us, of course, any any investor generally is looking for a return on their investment when they put money into something. So for us, how do we find investments that at least can be justified to make financial sense, which obviously is easier said than done in this business, you know. Clubs that maybe don't have debt or are well run. You know, Derby County is a good example of a club that has not been well run and has a lot of debt and is not a good financial position. So you can understand why a club like that would be attractive, right? It has a huge fan base and a good history. But you know, obviously, you know, a club like that with all the, the liabilities that it has and going down to League One, and it, it, it's very challenging. So for us, it's really identifying the market, identifying the type of club, the size of the club, the financial commitment, and then kind of narrowing that all that down to a set of clubs that fits our characteristics. Although, you know, most clubs that are for sale are distressed in some form, whether that's they're having financial difficulties or they have ownership that is not doing things the right way. So it's understanding that you're not going to go into a club that's you know particularly well run and you're going to have to make a lot of changes and kind of change the way things are run. And, and that's kind of a given when you go into these clubs. And when we're looking at it from an assets point of view, um what type of assets are we talking about are we talking about maybe the ground itself training grounds or are we talking about um personnel so in terms of maybe players coaches etc so obviously i guess the the value of the assets plays a lot of judgment into how much the risk reward is yeah i mean everything you mentioned is an important variable to look at um you know i think real estate is always one of the key factors does the club own their stadium if they don't What's the lease agreement look like? Um, does the club own its training academy? I think certainly when you're looking at clubs, what are the assets in terms of players and staff, right? I mean, if, if a club has, you know, is whether it's well-run or not, if a, a club has players that are value, valuable, sellable assets, that's worth real money when it comes to value in a football club. Uh, you know, history, fan base, uh, culture, I think those are all things that maybe you know, aren't necessarily tangible assets that you can value, but I think are important. If, if you're looking at a football club that, you know, was founded five years ago that averages 2,000 fans per game versus a football club that was founded 100 years ago that averages 25,000 fans a game. Obviously, those are two totally different conversations when it comes to the value proposition of those clubs. So all of that kind of stuff comes into play uh, when you're looking in terms of buying and, and managing these clubs. And how do you make a judgment as to whether a club is being mis mismanaged? Now, I appreciate you're probably not going to want to name names here, but there's perceptions from the outside that some owners maybe don't take as good a care of the club as people would like or don't act in a way that the club would like but potentially that's not always the case I look at Tottenham for example it frustrates me as a Tottenham fan that maybe we don't spend as much money on player wages or player transfers you like but the actual management of the club has been probably you could say exemplary over the last 20 years in terms of the way they're able to build assets the way they're multifaceted and what the stadium can do and all those kind of bits in and around it so from your perspective how do you judge if a club's maybe being underutilized or mismanaged and then obviously that's a point which you might be able to get a low point and find a club that you're then able to grow quicker or get back to where they were quicker yeah, I think this is one of the big differences between North American sports and European football. You know, in North American sports, you could lose a lot of games or, um, you know, not be a particularly well-run club, but still just make money because all, all these teams just churn money. There's no relegation in North American sports. 
European football, it's pretty clear. Like there's two ways to see if a club is well-run. Like if a club is losing games and a club is losing a lot of money, it's not a well-run football club. And so I think the, the relegation system is a pretty clear indicator. If a club gets relegated, you're doing something wrong. Obviously, you know, there's other factors that come into play, whether it's luck or, or whatnot, injuries. Um, but yeah, I mean, you look at clubs that are losing lots of money and clubs that are losing lots of games. Those are pretty clear indicators. Obviously, if you dig deeper into it, you can see that, you know, there's uh, not high retention when it comes to employees or the culture is bad or players don't want to play there, or there's a lot of turnover when it comes to staff. Those are all things that are signs of a poor organization, but I think it's, it's pretty straightforward. You just look at a club and you say, yeah, okay. Uh, Darby County is a good example. Like they, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to say they didn't, uh, they didn't actually overextend themselves this year in terms of performance on the pitch when they were in a difficult situation, but over a period of years, they've really struggled over a period of years. They've lost a ton of money and had a ton of debt and now they're in league one and on the verge of bankruptcy. So it kind of goes to tell you, it's pretty clear that club is not being well run. And then when you're looking at it from, I think this brings us nicely onto the process. If you're looking to actually purchase a club, what type of due diligence can you do and what type of information can you actually get your hands on? Because you obviously mentioned culture there in terms of staff turnover, et cetera. How much due diligence are you able to do around those types of areas? And you know how historical will you get accounts or staff turnover, player turnover, player contracts, all that type of stuff? I mean, from my perspective, I think due diligence is really important, even if there's things that you can't control. Um, it's understanding what you're getting yourself into from a liability perspective. I think most ownership groups, particularly foreign ownership groups, do pretty cursory due diligence, in which case they just, they kind of gloss over it. And then they buy a club and they're like, oh shit, we have all these liabilities that we didn't understand and contracts. And uh, there's lots of things they don't understand. From my perspective, you're going back at least three years, maybe five years on like detailed forensic accounting of the clubs in terms of financials, understanding what the financial model is in terms of maybe the club was in a higher division three years ago. So we have to understand that financial model is different than it is today. What does the debt look like at the club? What is the staff? Now, obviously, until you buy a club, you're not going to be able to sit down with the head of the commercial department to understand how the, the culture is a bit difficult to, to dig into um, when you haven't actually bought the club yet. But you know you can do a good amount of homework on the outside in terms of site visits and um, Google searches and that kind of thing in terms of understanding, wow, okay, you know, this club has had five coaches in two years, or this club has had six directors in three years. Like that's a pretty good indicator that there's some serious issues with the culture. And obviously that could just be a simple, simple situation. That's poor management by the prior ownership group and new ownership coming in will solve the problem for you. So I think you can be as diligent or as not diligent as you want when it comes to due diligence um, for us and the way I approach things. I think it's important to make sure that no stone is, is left unturned in terms of understanding what the day-to-day -day business is and, and what, what you're getting yourself into when you buy these businesses. And so in terms of the actual process of purchasing a club, what does that actually look like? Because I mean, most people in here will probably have bought a house at some point and understand the process of you know, getting a mortgage or that type of stuff. So what does the process actually entail if you're looking to take ownership of a football club? So obviously depends, right? Something like the Chelsea sale, like that's a third party, you know, outside group that's conducting a bidding process and there's boxes that need to get checked. You know, most football clubs, it's a very relationship driven business. So it's, you know, making contact with the prior, the current owners of the club, understanding what their expectations are, 
Um, obviously going through a, a feeling out process on both sides in terms of obviously from the buyer's perspective, significant diligence from the seller's perspective, making sure the buyers are legitimate and they have proof of funds and they're going to be good caretakers of the club. And so you know, obviously lawyers are involved. Um, so it can take upwards of six, eight, 10 months to go through the process, depending on how big the club is and whatnot. Or it can be a club that's really distressed and needs money to make payroll and someone steps up and two days later they buy a club. It's kind of everything from all ends of the spectrum. So there's no necessarily one right way it happens, but usually, usually these clubs for the most part are not in a good place and they're distressed and they're financially, uh, they're cash strapped. And so that accelerates the process in terms of getting the transactions done. And that usually means cutting some corners diligence wise and transaction wise, but that's just how things go in this business. And I'm assuming for majority of people purchasing a club that maybe is in distress, you're looking at maybe a reduced rate for taking on maybe not being able to do as much due diligence as you would like. But because they're in distress, you're saying, well, we're getting a lower price here, which is going to allow us maybe to neglect some of those areas that otherwise we would be interested in. It's possible. Yeah, everything is negotiable. I mean, debt comes into play, right? A lot of these clubs have heavy debt that's owed to the prior owner. So a lot of times it's about how do we write down that debt? Because if you don't write down that debt, the, the club is maybe not attractive enough, in which case it goes out of business. And so I think there's, there's always a negotiation that goes on between the current seller and the new group in terms of what does this transaction look like? How does this benefit both sides? Because, you know, there's, you know, it, it always comes down to a situation where if the seller is up against the wall in terms of the club going bankrupt, unless they don't care about that, they're generally pressed to make a deal. Whereas the, the flip side is, you know, many buyers are looking for deals out there and looking for clubs that are good, good investments. And if the clubs, if there's no incentive for the owner to sell, they're gonna be like, cool, uh, you know, give me a billion dollars for this Premier League club, it's for sale when it really isn't for sale. So it kind of is both sides of the coin there. So I just want to, get this straight from what you just said at times club could have debt that's owed to the owner and then when you're negotiating you have to negotiate with the owner to figure out how much of that debt you're actually going to pay back yes yes yeah so a lot of football clubs are are funded by the owners right they're putting cash into the clubs the clubs are losing money and that is Either the it can be one of two ways. The owners are putting money into their own clubs and converting that into equity in the in the business, or it's debt, in which case the club owned by X individual owes X individual or his company money, which this is this is Derby County as as my understanding has this as well. And that creates a situation where it's all negotiable in terms of how that debt is part of the transaction or not part of the transaction. But a lot of football clubs do it this way. Okay. So the so if you look at someone like the Glazers then that try and get dividends at the back of every year, I'm assuming that's to try and claw back some of the debt that they've accrued by purchasing the club in the first place. Is that correct? Uh, yes. I don't exactly know how that's structured. Obviously, they're a publicly traded company as well. So that's a little bit different. Um, you know, there, there's two sides of it, right? There's operational debt and then there's there's the transaction costs from when they buy the club. So a lot of what we're talking about here is operational debt. So, you know, all these clubs in the UK, for instance, they're losing five, 10, 15, 20 million pounds a year, right? That money has to come from somewhere, right? And if that money is coming from the owner, he's funding it. That presumably is debt that is on the books that is owed to the owner. It's not necessarily related to the transaction costs. It's related to the operation of the club. And that debt accrues over years, over years, as these clubs lose money over a period of time. And so 
you know, for instance, uh, you know, if that debt is at 50 million pounds and the owner wants to sell, like he could say, cool, give me 50 million pounds. This, this club owes me the money. But the buyer can also be like, well, we're not going to do that. You, you can go let the club go out of business. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll pay you the 20 million out of the 50. You need to write off 30, in which case we can, we can make a deal on this transaction. And that's oftentimes what happens. Okay. That's, that's really interesting. You said, you say that owners obviously don't generally make money out of clubs, but you know, I can imagine someone like Mike Ashley, where the fans really wanted him out of Newcastle, but he's probably there trying to say, well, I want to claw back more of the debt than I don't have to sell. And I'm trying to claw back more of the debt than, than that's being offered. So I think, yeah, that's a really interesting uh, perspective on that. Once you have obviously bought the club and then you're kind of going in, um, what type of things are you looking for maybe in that first 100 days, first 90 days? I know there's a there's a common laugh in uh, first team environments for football, which is new manager comes in. The first meeting that you have is everyone's going to get a clean slate and we're going to start afresh, etc. And then all of a sudden, one or two end up in the under 23s and you're like, well, that clean slate didn't last very long, etc. So from your perspective in that first 90 days, 100 days, etc., what type of things are you trying to establish? What areas are you looking at? And what are your major red flags for, for going in and things that would really cause you concern? Yeah, I mean, I think it's evaluating the people in the organization. That's both on the football side and on the commercial and off, off the field side. It's understanding which, which are valuable assets that you want to keep and which areas do we need to change. And that's no different than looking at the roster and trying to reevaluate the coaching staff. Um, everything is, is up for evaluation, everything from player performance to the physios, to the data analytics, to the sponsorship guys, to the ticket sales, it all has to be evaluated to understand, okay, these areas it's working. We're happy with this. The club is doing well, these areas, not so much. We might have to make some changes. And so I think as quickly as possible, it's important to evaluate and make necessary changes. Cause again, you're generally buying clubs that are not in a great place financially or culturally. And so. Um, I think it's important to, to a certain extent to bring in people that will change the culture at these clubs and institute a way of thinking that is aligned with the new ownership group. And so I think that's really important. Um, it's not always necessarily the case. Some groups like to come in and leave everything the way it is. But generally speaking, I, I've seen that most of these clubs are not in a great place. And I think it's important to make a lot of changes uh, to kind of be philosophically aligned as quickly as possible. And how do you establish uh, that evaluation piece? So is it spending time with them from a week to week, day to day basis and actually kind of shadowing departments to see what they do? Is it sitting down from an overview perspective and actually using your historical knowledge and saying, well, our ticket sales should be higher than this. So this concerns me. Um, how do you go around that uh, difference yeah. departments? All of the above, everything you mentioned, obviously it's from a data perspective, right? Uh, is the club winning games? Does that, is the coach performing? Are the players performing? Uh, is the sales guy, is he bringing in the commercial revenue that is expected for a club of this size in this league? Uh, and that's also the interpersonal relationships in terms of, you know, is the culture working at the club? You know, is the environment the way you want it to be? And so I think it's a little bit of everything that you just said. Um, and there's no necessarily one right answer. Some things might take time, but other things might say, look, for instance, a club that just got relegated, right? You have to say, something's not working. We just got relegated. Clearly something's not working. What isn't working? Is it the coach? Is it the players? Is it something off the field? Is it a combination of all the things? Understanding what isn't working and how you're going to fix it as quickly as possible. And how do you establish individuals that might be higher potential or higher performing than 
they currently are. So I imagine you would go into some buildings and again, use please use real life examples if you can, but there might be you know a real hidden gem in your advertising department that's being really crushed down by the way they were being managed or that ideas weren't being listened to. So how do you begin to establish those individuals that might be you know real high potential and that might actually be able to flourish if given the right support and right tools? Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's 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 no different than identifying players that are under you know undervalued and saying, okay, this eighteen year old kid who doesn't have a lot of playing time is gonna we identify he has the tools that need to be successful and developing him over a period of time. So it's it's really analyzing the data a lot. So saying, okay, our number three sales rep, his numbers are better than our number one sales rep. What's going on there? Why is that happening? Clearly, he is doing something the other guys aren't. Right? Is it you know you know just seeing the environment in at the club and saying, wow, that. I don't know, that kit man is at the club 24 seven, right? His dedication to the club and his work rate is so much higher than everyone else. So again, there's no one right answer, but it's, it's evaluating each role on and off the pitch and saying, how is their performance doing in relation to uh, other people in the organization and people outside the organization and people we've, we've worked with in the past. And if they're overperforming expectations saying, okay, maybe we can take this person and elevate them into a position where they're better suited and can do more for us. Um, but really that's, it's difficult to quantify. And I think it's something that can only happen over time as we get to know a lot of the people in the organization, understand what they're all about and what their motivations are. How do you incorporate culture in terms of the, the area that you're going into within that as well? So I, I'm happy to use an example of this. Like if you've got a team in Miami, I'm a Miami Dolphins fan, so I'm going to use American football to analogy for here. If you've got a team in Miami, they might love the, the hot weather and all that type of stuff. It's a very different culture to then if you're going into New England in the middle of winter when it's freezing cold. You're going to get different type of people in, in each area, etc. So how, how can you as, a, as an owner begin to use all that intel and stuff you've got there and then add in actually the culture in the area or in the country etc lends itself towards this so we need to find maybe more external people to support us with this area or that's another red flag in terms of people that maybe are outliers to the local area local region etc so i think it's really important for us as an ownership group to set our expectations and identity and, and what we want the culture to look like from the top so what kind of organization do we want to be on and off the pitch right so for us in denmark we're not the highest spending team in the world uh you know obviously we're a club in scandinavia and we're, we're a club that tries to hit above our way we want to be a hard-working industrious uh squad and we're you know we we have an artificial turf pitch so we want to play high possession like all these characteristics of who we are as a club and an organization, that's what we build culture around. And then we bring in people who can implement that culture because ultimately culture is driven by people. And so you bring in a coach, a CEO, a sporting director, all these different leaders in the organization. They're the ones that are going to be implementing and driving culture. And then obviously it's our job as, as leaders to recruit and, and hire and staff the organization with people who fit into that culture. Right. Um, so I think, you know, for instance, if we were to bring in a high priced player who's maybe played in bigger leagues and commands really high wages and doesn't have like the kind of industrious mentality that we have, they're not going to be a good fit for our organization. So I think really the culture has to permeate from the top. You have to have a clear and concise strategy and you have to let it kind of permeate down through the people you bring on and make sure everyone you bring on kind of fits a set of characteristics that you want and, 
you might not always do it right. All it takes in the locker room, for instance, is one person, one player who, for whatever reason, isn't a fit with your culture for that to kind of really make things difficult. Um, and so for us, culture locker room is all really important. And we have to be aware that I think that's something that is not easy to implement, but can easily, um, I don't want to say crumples too strong a word, but can, can, can go by the wayside quickly. If you don't keep, uh, if you don't have the right characteristics in place. So leading on from that, you, you obviously mentioned around signing players, et cetera. How does that process work? So if, you know, if you identify with the sporting director and the manager that you need, you know, a, a number 10 player, for example, what is the process to, I guess, a player or players being presented to you um, or the ownership team in terms of, you know, requesting of funds to go and pay transfer fee, agent fees, uh, salary, etc. And what type of questions are you asking to assure that they do align with what all, you know, all those characteristics that you've just said? So we have a, a committee, a sporting committee, in terms of making decisions when it comes to our, the construction of our roster and decisions on the sporting side. And so that's myself, that's our coach, that's our sporting director, that's our CEO. So we're all closely aligned when it comes to making these decisions. And we're all, um, you know, we all have equal input when it comes to, you know, uh, looking at the different players that, that comes to us. So obviously it's driven by our coach and our sporting director. Uh, which players we want to look at, but, you know, subsequent conversations, contract negotiations, all those kind of things. We collectively talk about that, obviously on the financial side, that's something more myself and the CEO are focused in on, but, you know, we have a budget that we look at every year and we need to make sure the players fit in that budget. You know, the questions we're asking in terms of, you know, first off, like, you know, what, what is their, you know, history in terms of on and off the pitch? What, you know, what is their background? You know, we, we focus more on recruiting domestically. So, Generally, I'm pretty well versed on Danish football, so it's mostly players that I've heard of and know about. But you know, have we spoken to their former former coaches, former players? Do we understand what this player is all about? What's their motivation, right? Because we don't want a player that's coming to the, to us just for the money, for instance, because that's just not the right motivation for us as a club. Um, so, you know, what are their long longer and you know ambitions as a person? Do they want you know do they want to be playing in the Danish Super League or do they want to be playing in the Premier League? All those kind of things. What is their family life? So I think all those things are really important to us. Injury history, supplier that's chronically injured. That's something that's important for us to know when we're making decisions. So we kind of take the whole data point and sets and, you know, if that player fits into what we need in our culture and then, you know, positionally what we need, then we say, okay, this is a player that makes sense for us. We'll start the contract negotiations and we'll, we'll move on. But we're always doing that six, 12 months in advance. We're not a big club. We're not a club that pays huge transfer fees. So we generally have to be a little bit smarter than everyone else and have to be thinking ahead. Um, and I think over the last probably three to four windows, we've done a pretty good job of that. And in terms of going into those negotiations, do you, uh, you might not want to give all your secrets away here, but do you kind of have a hard line which you're like, we will not play, pay any more than this amount for this player when you go into negotiations? Or is it very much a you know, will work anywhere within this type of band? Because I can imagine if it's a player that you and the sporting uh, CEO and um, the coach really, really want, it's, and they're asking for, you know, an extra £250 a week or something, it could be very easy just to keep giving that £250 and then all of a sudden you end up in a situation where salary-wise you're over budget, et cetera. So how, how does that actually work for you guys as a club to make sure that your model is sustainable and 
um, you know, can continue progressing the way that you want. We have hard lines when it comes to spending and agent fees and all that kind of stuff. And so it needs to fit within our budgets and we're pretty strict about that. The moment you get outside of those budget uh, guidelines, you start spending over and above what you want to and you start losing more money than you already want to. And obviously a lot of clubs get into a lot of trouble without having financial discipline. So yeah, we're very disciplined when it comes to these things. We don't overspend. Uh, we're one of the lowest spending teams in our division. and. We're pretty proud of what we've been able to accomplish by being very financially disciplined. So, yeah, I mean, it's easier said than done, right? If you like a player, you know, it's just a couple thousand dollars more to get that player, but you can't take that approach. You just can't. Um, you certainly can't and try to treat it like a savvy business like we do. So, And how do you manage it with individuals that maybe are looking to progress further? So I, I imagine, like you mentioned there, that you might get a player that looks, they want to go into one of the big five leagues and maybe go and play in a Serie A or go and play in the French League or one, et cetera. How do you manage those types of individuals in rewarding them for good form, good performance, et cetera? Um, and then obviously not wanting to lose them from your team because, you know, they're an integral part of your team and what you guys are doing to also, I guess, support them to make that jump into one of those leagues and you know go on to have aspirations elsewhere yeah i mean look i mean at the end of the day we're a selling club like every other club outside of you know the biggest clubs in the world but you know we have we are a stopping off point for many of these players as they develop their careers and you know it's lucrative and needs to be lucrative for the club and it's good for the player so you know we want players that are hungry and ambitious to play at a higher level but at the same time they need to be humble and understanding that here and now and today they're in the Danish first division and they need to be motivated to perform with where they're at, understanding that if they do that, they will be able to move on. So it definitely is a balance for us, but, you know, I think we've gotten to the point where the players understand that if they do perform, we will support moving them on to bigger clubs. And, you know, we've been a little bit hesitant over the last probably window or two to, to really push hard to move some of our players on just because we're having so much success on the pitch, but I think moving forward, we're going to focus a little bit more probably on moving our players on and, and advancing their careers. And, you know, club puts a sell on fee and, you know, if the, if the player continues to advance their career, it's a win-win for everyone. Perfect. And I guess th this is something that might be really interesting to discuss from an agent's perspective. How does it work with agents? Um, you know, I think the perception within football is that these, sunglasses on hat on you know behind closed doors type individuals and whatnot but at times I think that's unfair from speaking to a few of them at times maybe not so unfair from speaking to a few of them as well but um how, how does that dialogue work in terms of them demanding certain things and you supporting that or not supporting that in terms of you looking for players what what type of dialogue goes on with agents in that perspective Totally depends on the agent. Some are easier to work with than others. Obviously, players have terms in their contracts, and if they're under contract, it's it's negotiation in terms of if they want to leave or they don't want to leave. Or the you know, all these things are all negotiable. Um, I think the agent space it's it's completely unregulated. So you have very credible, very reputable agents, and then you have ones that are not so much, ones that are easy to work with, ones that are not easy to work with. I, I think obviously it's a little bit more difficult for us because we're very financially disciplined, and you know we're not we're not the kind of group that's just going to throw money around and pay crazy agent fees and do stupid stuff, which makes things a little bit more difficult for us. 
Um, but yeah, other than that, it's pretty straightforward negotiations, right? It's, you have two, you know, if we're talking about selling a player, you have the, the, the selling team, which is us, the buying team, and then the agents kind of in between negotiating how the terms work between the two, between the two clubs and how the player, you know, their new contract would look at the new club. So they're kind of a middleman in a lot of these conversations when it comes to the movement of the players away from our club. But other than that, for us, we only really deal with them when it comes to contract renewals or loans or if for whatever reason, a player isn't working out, if we want to move on from them, you know, of course it can be difficult. Um, I think the biggest challenge I have with agents is a lot of times they're, they're not necessarily motivated by what's best for their players. They're motivated what's best for them. And that's not every agent, but a lot of them are. And that creates an environment that's difficult. It will have a player, for instance, any player who maybe for whatever reason, isn't playing very much and it isn't in the coach's plans. And we tell the player, look, it's time for you to go find a new club. And you know, if you stay here, you're not going to play, even though if you have another year on your contract, you're not going to play. And we've had agents tell us, look, I, you know, we're not interested in moving this player on unless you meet X, Y, and Z terms, which include certain benefits to the agent. And we're like, I, why would we do that? We don't understand. Like we want to help this player move on with their career. Uh, that's great. You should not stop your player from moving on because that's what's best for your player. But ultimately that's just the way this business is. We deal with the, the way things are and it is what it is. And do you find that 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 can affect you when you're trying to bring people in? So I can imagine you know, if if, if agents demanded five grand and for for their fee or whatever, it's probably more than that. But if they were demand, demanding five grand, and you say no, listen, we'll do three and that's it, and then you end up losing a player and they go somewhere else. Do you see there's that affecting you moving forward, where that agent won't come to you with other players that might be of interest or you hear about those players further down the line or is it literally a case-by-case -case basis and obviously trying to um, support them each player as necessary it's a case-by-case -case basis I mean I think the agents understand that this is a negotiation and we're definitely going to say no you know I don't think we've ever had an agent say they won't work with us because we're not going to pay some sort of agent fee or something but yeah it's a relationship driven business and Certainly, if we have a tough negotiation and things don't end well, that could damage the relationship. But at the end of the day, we own the club and we have the players. And so the agents need the clubs. Like, there's no way around it. Um, so there's a certain leverage there a little bit from a club perspective. But, yeah, it's definitely a balance in terms of trying to be respectful to these people, but also understanding that, um, you know, you need to make decisions in a way that are in the best interest of yourself. And they have to understand that. And some understand it and some don't. Perfect. So moving on slightly, of doing a little bit of research into your background and stuff, I know you, you mentioned a little bit around kind of multi-club groups, etc., and, and how that potentially works in modern day football. So for people that aren't aware, what do multi-club groups look like? And I guess what are some of the maybe the benefits of it and maybe some of the negatives of the, that type of model as well? I think you have obviously the biggest one is City Football Group who own Manchester City and they have a bunch of clubs all over the world, Australia, South America, France, Belgium, all over the place. The benefits are most mostly on the player side in terms of getting access to different pools of players and developing, not always developing, but some smaller markets, um, getting access to them and then moving them throughout your portfolio. So the example would be a young player come, you know, a young Australian player comes through Melbourne City, which is an, a team owned by City Football Group, and they get transferred to Troy, who's City Football Group's team in France. They do well, and then they get transferred to Manchester City, all under the same umbrella of Manchester City, where they're not going out and paying huge transfer fees for these young talent because they own all the players and all the talent. So I think that's the idea behind it. 
Um, I think execution-wise, it can be obviously very difficult. It's really difficult to own and operate one club well and efficiently, let alone 10 clubs. Um, but it's becoming more and more popular. I think, um, you know, there's certain groups and certain ultra-wealthy individuals who like the idea of owning a club in Italy and a club in Spain and a club in Denmark. And like, it's sexy, it's fun. They get to get on a plane and go to different places, but haven't seen too many groups that actually run it efficiently or well, um, just because it's so difficult. So yeah, I mean, there's other ways you can use economies of scale. You can have a sponsorship department across all the portfolio teams. So you have, you know, uh, city football group sponsor guys that are, you know, overseeing sponsorship in six countries, right? Like presumably that could help them and make things run more efficiently. But generally speaking, it's almost entirely specific towards identifying, developing, and maintaining players. And is that something that would interest you? Obviously, you're running a club at the moment within Denmark. Is that something that would interest you and maybe looking, I don't know, into Africa or Asia and trying to find other clubs that might suit what you guys do and being able to replicate the success you've had elsewhere? I think, yeah. I mean, I think it depends on the market. Um, I think it's all to me about doing it slowly and strategically going from one club to two clubs over a period of many years instead of going from one club to seven clubs in three years kind of thing it has to be slow and progressive and it also has to be very strategic about what market you're going into a place like africa for instance is very 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 difficult to run a business in a place like that i think if you had a club in denmark and a club in switzerland right like okay i could see a model where you could run two clubs and they can work together and i'm not it would not be easy but it could be doable um I think, you know, going into South America, going into Asia, much more challenging. So it just depends on the market and the club and what it looks like. But I do think that probably is the future of, uh, of the sport as more and more of these groups are coming in. We'll see how many stick around in terms of because a lot of them aren't run particularly well. But I do think more groups are looking towards this model. And do you think they are looking towards this model purely from a player's perspective and having access to these players and networks in, in other regions? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so it's, a, it's again, it's a really interesting concept because you said it, it branches out your scouting network and all that type of stuff as well. But I guess it does come with its challenges and everyone trying to pull from the same same pots, etc. Um, and how how does this work in terms of resources looking across sports, etc. As well, so you look at like the Cronkies over um, in the states, etc. I believe they are in Tampa Bay. Um, and obviously Arsenal over here. No, the Glazers own Tampa Bay and um, United, Cronkies, LA Rams, Arsenal. But how would how would that work? And what are the benefits from that perspective of when you're going across sports and whatnot? Uh, yeah, I mean, the benefits are, you know, uh, these people own a professional sports franchise already and presumably they have expertise in running it. I'm not necessarily sure across sports how much is transferable, right? So for instance, an owner of an NFL team buying a European football club. Those are two very, very different businesses. Um, so yeah, but I mean, they understand what it takes in terms of to hire personnel and what it is like to run a sports franchise. So I think that's basically the only benefit. I don't like Arsenal, right? You're not seeing any sort of collaboration with the LA Rams because Kroenke owns both club. Like there's really very little to any integration between clubs of different sports. Um, but you do obviously see owners who own clubs in multiple sports. It happens a lot, but I'm not necessarily sure there's any sort of integration happening. I, don't, I hope it stays that way because LA Rams are good and Arsenal aren't. So as a Spurs fan, I'm happy with that. So. <laughs> um, from a strategic point of view, um, obviously that's going to be a large proportion of your role in outlining you know, what the vision for a club is 
um, and you know what direction you want to go in and how you transmit this both to fans and personnel within the club. How do you go about, I guess, one, identifying what you want your strategies, et cetera, to be? And then how do you go around, you know, actually implementing those strategies in a way that are digestible to, you know, the person selling tickets in the ticket office, right the way up to, you know, the, the CEO who's taking care of all the businesses that they are? That's a good question. I mean, I think it's it's to what I said a little bit earlier. I think your strategy is definitely dictated by, you know, what are the motivations of your ownership group in terms of what are your resources, right? Where is the club located? What are your financial resources? What are your assets? Like that kind of starts to formulate who you are as a club and what you want to be. And then once you, you, you do have that, you'll really, you know, it's, it's about the people you bring on implementing that, right? It's making sure the, you know, the people you have on the ground are building the culture and making sure that it's being executed properly. That's again, done by the, the leaders of the organization. For us, that's the coach, sporting director, CEO, like those people on a day-to-day basis need to make sure that the strategy is being implemented. And if it's veering off from what you want, they have to bring it back on, right? So I think really it's about the people on the ground, people-driven culture and people-driven strategy and making sure that they stick the course. And then again, that has to trickle up all the way to the ownership group, making sure that the way things are being run at the ownership group level are in line with what's happening on the ground. And from your perspective, obviously, as you said, you came from a successful technology business and then have come into kind of this sporting background as well. Do you have you had any particular challenges in taking the strategy of what was successful as a framework? in business and taking out the bits you want and putting it in sport? Have you seen any massive differences of something that they do really well in the business world that maybe in the sporting world has currently been neglected? Um, I mean, yeah, of course we've had challenges and things we've had to adjust. I mean, the business world is a little bit more simple depending on the business you're in, like in sport, right? Everything we do is forward facing, right? Everything we, every decision we make is in the local newspaper and people are talking about it and the fans are talking about it. It's all very forward facing business, depending on the business you're in. That's not necessarily always the case. Uh, Obviously sport is different in that it's related to uh, variable performance, right? It's, it's, we can't necessarily predict what's going to happen on the field. And, you know, everything that happens on the pitch affects everything in the whole business. So if we win a game, we're going to sell more tickets. We're going to have more interest from sponsors, all those kind of, all our commercial metrics are going to rise where we can't control that, where maybe in the real business world, you can control more of the variables when it comes to whatever your production and whether, whatever good you're selling or whatever business you're in. So I do think a lot of the skills are transferable, but there are definitely clear differences that have to be accounted for when you're going from the business world into sport. One thing that I've noticed, and this might just be a perception thing, so please correct me if I'm wrong, seems like at the high-end uh, businesses, when a CEO leaves or a chief financial advisor leaves, there's a real thorough process to find out who that next successor is that might take you know three months, six months to find the right candidate, and it's not rushed until the right candidate is in place. Whereas in football, um, I'm happy to share this. The time when I was at QPR, we had five first team managers in the space of two seasons. Yeah. Which obviously isn't uh, <laughs> isn't best practice. What do you reckon the reason is for kind of that? Not, I don't want to say neglect because I think that's unfair, but why is it in the business world there's such an emphasis on making sure the person's right compared to maybe in the sporting world where it's like, well, we need someone. So this person's going to come in. 
I think there's an urgency when it comes to sport. You know, for instance, if you want to talk about managers, you know, we're losing games. It's costing us money. We have to make a change quickly. Okay, that's not working. You have to make a change quickly again. I think in the business world, there's a little bit more of a, a runway to make sure proper decisions are made. I just think the business world, there's more of a history and tradition of looking at things like human resources and human capital and understanding that people are important. I think in sports, all, all people care about in sports is what's on, happening on the field, players, coaches. Like they don't think about the CEO. They don't think about what's happening behind the curtain. Um, they don't think about how well-run the, the, the clubs are or are not. And so I think I, I've talked about this a lot. It's like, you know, these, these clubs, they just don't value people. And so then it doesn't, shouldn't surprise anyone when they're fi- you know, bringing in five new coaches in two years. Like it just, they don't value it. They don't value stability. They don't value that particular skill set. Um, why is that the case in sport versus the business world? Again, remember, I think a lot of people are treating sport not like a business. And so they, they, they're, they're using a different set of variables. You either win or you don't, or you lose your job. In business, it's you make money or you don't, or you lose your job, right? So it's a, a lot of clubs aren't necessarily trying to make money or aren't making decisions based on trying to make money. So the set of motivations, I think, are very different between the two. And from your perspective, I know that well, I hope that you, you don't want to change your manager very often. You want to try and keep it the same place. Do you guys look at individuals that might suit your culture and philosophy and stuff moving forward? I know that's more of a trend now. It seems like, you know, Southampton, for example, are well known for having kind of managers that fit a particular style and a way that they want to play. And it seems like more and more teams are going down that route. Is that something that you guys kind of look at and go, you know, if our manager was to get headhunted to be the Brazilian first team or national team manager, which I'm sure you hope he does. Um, we've got this individual that we think would suit the criteria that we'd be looking for. Yes. Yes. Strategy, strategy needs to be club driven. I sat down with the guys at Brentford like four or five years ago and they, they had this strategy well before most clubs and that you can't just bring in a manager and let him do his own thing and build everything around one person. And then either that person performs. And then as you said, bigger club comes in and he leaves or that person doesn't perform. You fire him start the whole process over with a different strategy. You know, your strategy needs to be club driven. And so, you know, we have, we have infrastructure in place that, you know, we've had the same coach for three seasons, which is a long time in football, but if for whatever reason he was, he was to leave, we have an assistant coach in place who is in line with the club strategy and he would take over. And if we had to identify someone else, they would be in line with the club strategy. So we're, we build around the club and not one person. I, I think you're right. I think more and more clubs are starting to think this way, but um, there still is an old, old school mentality of we're going to bring in a guy. And then when that guy's not good enough, we're going to bring in another guy. And if they play two totally different systems or totally different styles, well, that's a big problem because you can't tear up your roster. You can't tear up your strategy and your, your off the field infrastructure. So that, I think it makes more sense to kind of have a club holistic approach. Please correct me if I'm wrong on this, but what I found really interesting is you mentioned the assistant coach potentially making that step up. One thing I've noticed, particularly in America, is there seems to, you talk about coaching trees, for example, in the NFL, you have the Bill Belichick coaching tree and, you know, his assistants, et cetera, get jobs elsewhere because of how well they've been an offensive coordinator, defensive coordinator. You've got Mike McDaniel, who's just come from Kyle Shanahan. At least from the outside looking, it seems like in America, that's quite a culture of trying to find that next expert head coach. Whereas I feel like sometimes in the football circles, maybe those assistant coaches, it's rare that they make that jump. You hear about the Mikel Arteta situation. A lot of people said, well, he's inexperienced. Bearing in mind, he'd just been on the, the staff of potentially the 
best manager of all time. I'd imagine, you know, in the States, maybe that isn't such an issue, whereas over here there were some question marks around it. Have you seen the differences in culture around those two things? Yeah, I think there's more of a hesitation in European football to, to look to assistant coaches. I think it's it's easier for clubs to hire a proven coach, even if that coach has been at 15 different clubs and is kind of stale. I do think there is definitely a little bit of a old boys network when it comes to coaching and that we're just going to keep hiring the same people over and over again. You know, Roy Hodgson is going to get hired for the 50th time at the 50th different club, right? So yeah, I think there's not a lot of young new ideas happening and, and coming from assistants. It, it does happen, but it doesn't happen that often. I would agree with that. Okay. And where do, where do you see, I guess, European football going in the next, you know, five to 10 years? I mean, there's a lot of conversations around European super leagues and all that type of stuff. But from your perspective and the inner workings that you've had, where do you see the sustainability in the sport or the opportunities in the sport over the next five to 10 years? I mean, I still think it's going to be consolidated with the biggest clubs at the top. That's where the most money is, obviously. I think um, I think there's still opportunities for medium to smaller size clubs to be run more efficiently and, and better. I mean, you, you see clubs, the Brentfords of the world, the teams in Portugal that are a handful of them that are developing and selling players. I think I think there still are opportunities um, in certain, you know, outside the top two or three markets in terms of clubs that can be run well. But I think to me, the real opportunity are clubs outside of Europe. I think Asia, I think South America, I think those are two markets where there's really significant talent pools and, and, and bases where you can you can ex expand and, um, and really build something interesting from a football perspective. And so I think very few people are looking at those two markets. And so, yeah, I think, uh, you know, I, I can't imagine we'll see major, major changes, but I think those are the areas that, that I would look towards. Perfect. And last question for me, it might be challenging with some of the people you work with, but who's the most um, impressive individual you've worked in within a football club and why? Um, most impressive person I work with at a football club. Um, hmm. That's a good question. I didn't work directly with him, but we had a, a manager on one of the teams that was in our division last year that got promoted that I was really impressed with. Um, they finished in third place this year in the, the top division, the Super League, and they're in Europe. And, you know, I, you know, they play a similar style to us, a similar philosophical way. And, and I've always, I was always really impressed with what he did. And he didn't necessarily work for us. And I think we've tried to replicate a lot of that with, with what we've done. But, you know, I, I'm proud of our staff, our coach, our director, our CEO. And I think they've done a really good job. And I've definitely been impressed with the, the success we've had considering the resources we have as a club. So I think, you know, a lot of the people in and around our organization definitely fit that criteria. Perfect. Listen, Jordan, really appreciate your time. I think a really nice insight into the background working of a professional football club and, and the business side, et cetera. So yeah, really appreciate your time and catch up with you again soon. Yep. Sounds good. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Sports Initiative podcast with me, Michael Wright. Please remember to follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at the Sports Initiative podcast and share this podcast with friends and family. I'll see you next week.